Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Fat Shack. Today's Fat Shack. Today's podcast is brought to you by Fat Shack. My name is Father Peter Muzzin. Fat Shack on the Hill in Boulder. If you want fat, you have a shack for it, it. (laughs) dude. The, the uh, lovely Chris Giuliano, a little shout out to him and shout out to the Fat Shack. They they really are fueling us. They gave me um some uh, beautiful uh, deep fried Oreos, of which I'm wearing clerics and they have powdered sugar all over them. So now I have powdered sugar all over myself, which is, if in case you're ever wondering, the one thing that priest dreads for his clerical wear mm-hmm. is powdered sugar. Yeah, and you're, I mean... You're a, you're a disaster, <laughs> dude. It's like absolute disaster. I feel like uh, snow, even though it's sunshiny. I know. I, I I want the snow. Come on, snow. Hey, we have a shout out this week. Oh my god. Well, we already had one. We what? had our fat shack shout out. Yep, and that's Scott Powell, and I'm Father Peter Musset. Wow, way to be the one who remembers. Hey. That's never happened. Dude, that's because I have an Oreo in my system filled a with fat shack fried Oreo. That's fatty fried. Hallelujah. Mm-hmm. You're losing your microphone again. Every week, man. Man, you get you keep on giving me the wrong microphone stand. Wait, so I could have mine folded? Yeah, dude. <laughs> I always fair. give you I always give you the janky one. Poo. I know. You uh so our <laughs> shout out this week is going to the focus team at the University of Kansas and Lawrence, who we got to meet on Sunday. Dude, they and, were awesome. Yeah, and they totally dug your dug your homily, even though you were sleep deprived and hopped up on Red Bull. Dude, I really was hopped up on I was out of control. I kept going for it because I just I was feeling it, man. I was feeling yeah. the Red Bull or something. Well, you were I mean you were on fire with the with the homily. It just was the the you were crazy. <laughs> the subcontext <laughs> I saw the crazy in the eyes. Dude, the crazy was there, man. I was I was making voices. No. You can tell when uh I'm I'm feeling good if I make special voices for I can, things. I can tell how sound mu- effects. I can trace how much sleep you've likely had based on your homily <laughs> on a given Sunday. It's great. Thanks. I want you to have less sleep. Okay. Done. So, that being said, so hey, you guys from Kansas, have fun in Kansas. And the shout-out comes to us via Gage Shirley. Oh. So I guess that's its own sort of shout-out, isn't it? Yeah, dude. The, Thanks, Gage. You know, he's very engaging. Oh. Oh, man. Oh, my. Dude, how do you measure that guy? Does he measure up? I don't know. We'll have to get a gauge to, to gauge. find uh, out. Ah. Uh, gauge is a, is a, is a um, fledgling meteorologist. Burgeoning meteorologist, Burgeoning. A blossoming meteorologist. <laughs> wow, dude, that was you know you just so you, did the process of um, <laughs> evangelization in the Gospel of Luke. You know how like there's those three stages, and do you see trees and the people look oh, like yeah. trees, and then they do that, and then he goes out. Oh man, I love that passage. I wish we were talking about that right now. Uh, no, well, it's okay. <laughs> that's okay. We'll we have these other regular cr- ones. Talk about people being crushed. It is the thirty ninth, the twenty. <laughs> I misread it, dude. The, the thirty ninth Sunday in ordinary time is the is. happiest thing. I've I've ever heard. Really? Because there, it, Cause will there never, is no we'll, such Yeah, there, we'll never be in the 39th Sunday oh. in ordinary time until heaven. Until then, then we'll just stay in ordinal time the whole time. Well, yeah, well, because actually there is no counting because everything is permanent in, in the moment. Well, I, mm-hmm. I don't want to get into a philosophical conversation about chain, about time in heaven, but I do think there is a semblance of time in heaven. Well, there has to be because we exist in eternity now. Correct. So the measure of time is actually movement and change. And if there are physical bodies via the resurrection of the dead and the new creation to come, then there will be measurable change. Not time in the sense we think of it now, but time nonetheless. So that being said, 
It's the 29th Sunday in Ordinary <laughs> Time. <laughs> and our readings this week are coming from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 10 through 11. That's our first reading. Our responsorial psalm, the response is from 30, Psalm 33, 22. 33, 22. And then the psalm... I'm the, sorry, what? Psalm, oh, the, the response itself is 22, yeah. Yeah, 30, yeah well 33, 22. And then Psalm 33, we have verse, verses 45, and then 18, 20, and then 22. You better believe it. Our second reading is coming from the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. My mom turned to me this week, and she's like, you know, you really should have named your coffee house Hebrews. Well, we're going to make the mugs. Remember that we saw oh, yeah, 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 that's yeah, on the inside? Absolutely. Oh, your mom had something. Your mom told me something that I really wanted to share on the podcast. I saw her on Friday, and I forget what it was. We had coffee together. Oh. It was lovely. Dude, that's... But she said something that I thought was hilarious that I was going to share on the podcast, and I don't remember. Uh, we'll get there. Oh, <laughs> we'll get sure there. it'll come up. Gospel. Mark 10, 35 to 45. You better believe it. We are we are just trudging along linearly in the gospel of Mark, and I have to do everything within my power to not jump ahead of us this week in the gospel. Because the client... See, see, here's the problem with taking chunks of readings. This is very good because this keeps the story going, but the climax of this particular story, I think, is in next week's gospel. So hang on. Hang on to your chairs, everybody. So... We going back to the book of Isaiah. That's where we're starting today. Um, okay, now this, I want to hear your thoughts on this because I've been struggling kind of all day with this. It's been a bit of a struggle. So it says this. The, it's a very short passage. It's Isaiah 53. We are in the last of the four servant songs. Remember the servant songs we've been talking about? Yes. So this, these prophecies in Isaiah, you know, kind of in the midst of, of suffering of the people of Israel, loss of their land, their kingdom and everything else. There is these series of prophecies about this figure who will sort of represent Israel, who will be this servant who suffers greatly. Yes. But at the end or in the midst of the suffering, he will experience redemption and, and glorification. So the last of those says this, the Lord was pleased to crush him in infirmity. Just let that hang for a second. I know. And it goes on. If he gives his life as an offering for sin, then he shall see his descendants in a long life, and the will of the Lord shall be accomplished through him. Because of his affliction, he shall see the light in fullness of days. Through his suffering, my servant shall so justify ran- many or ransom, ransom many, many. Yeah. and their guilt he shall bear. Now, all of that, or most of it, I think, is pretty typical. You know, if you guys have been Christians or Catholics for any length of time, I mean, there's familiar language about... Jesus is going to suffer it to justify many. He's the ransom for sin. You know, all of these things we're familiar with. But it's that first line that bugs me. And I searched every commentary I could find, which I don't have a lot of commentaries on Isaiah, but I searched all the ones I had, where it says in verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him in his infirmity. That's a tricky one. <laughs> Not that, no, we know that, you know, again, if this is a prophecy about Jesus, which we firmly believe that it is, we know that Jesus will, in a certain sense, be crushed. He will be killed. He will suffer his passion. He will die. And we know the end of the story. It will be for the redemption of humanity, and he will be glorified within that. But that line, the Lord was pleased to crush him in infirmity, is just that's a tricky one to wrap your head around. No, that's and that's really difficult. I noticed that every commentary I could find studiously avoided, even the ones that like were tracing every Hebrew word, everyone studiously avoids, avoids that he was pleased to do this. Because we get God being sacrificed. We get Jesus being crushed. We get the reason for that. But the idea that God was pleased to do it was the one that was just kind of hard to swallow. Yeah. like 
In and my, I have some thoughts. I mean, it's interesting because as I was <clears throat> meditating on this, I totally missed that. I, I, I'm not seeing that. But as you say that. Apparently I, so did all the commentaries. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I mean, I've heard it and it's actually familiar to my ears, but like, dude, what is that? Well, okay. So here's, here's some, I had lots of ideas before and then I ate lunch with you and all the ideas have, are slowly floating <laughs> out of my head. The Lord was pleased to crush him in infirmity. There's there's lots of different translations for that. Well, you know, there's not that many different translations. No. Um, the the RSV Catholic edition, which I like to use, says, "Yet it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. Um, he has put him to grief." It it translates it by saying it was the will of the Lord. That's n- I don't th- I don't know Hebrew that well, but I know the Septuagint better. I just don't think that gives. Um, Justice enough to exactly what's going on here. It, it it was the will of the Lord. This is how I can wrap my mind around the idea that it's the will of the Lord that this happens and God knows the good that's going to come out of it. So there's an acceptance, but it's the idea of being pleased. And here's what I found. I dug around lots of commentaries. There's one. I, is, there, do you know, is there a Hebrew word or a Greek word? I mean, I, I actually did not look at my inner, inner ear today. Yeah. So the, the word, the Hebrew word, it, it's. I don't like I said I don't know Hebrew well enough to speak super intelligently, but it, it seems to be the word that that refers to delight, to delight in something. Chapet, right? Buletai, um, buletai is the 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 Greek word. But okay, so yeah. you can't. I I feel like the RSV, which I usually love, is trying to kind of wash over something. Yeah, yeah, it's because it says the will of the Lord, and it's rather than it was he was pleased. It's like but I, literally in Hebrew it says he took delight. In this, that that's the tricky one. And one of the things that I saw, one of the commentaries that was trying to to kind of put this together, where where did it go? Um, talks about how so there is in the manuscript tradition, you know. So what we have of the original Old Testament that we're piecing together these ancient manuscripts, there are a couple discrepancies. There's some different translations even in the manuscripts of like exactly what this is saying, and there's some confusion. And what it says, where did it go? Oh, I lost it. Hey, say something for a sec. I uh, this this is actually the principle of what we're doing right now. To <laughs> me, is the absolute best thing because if you ever find yourself struggling with the theology in the church, or what is the words of scripture, it is absolutely radically important that you engage it because usually the things that are most off-putting and difficult for you are the the ones that actually contain the most grace for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so there's there's one option of a translation. I just kind of liked this. It says, but Yahweh took pleasure in his humiliated one, which is one way you could potentially render the Hebrew. That not that the Lord is taking pleasure that he's being yeah. bruised or beat up, but he's taking pleasure in the one who is being bruised and beat up. Yes. The Lord takes great pleasure in that. And that that's, might seem, you know, we've spent a long time talking about this. It might seem like a small, really insignificant point. Okay, what is the big deal? But I think it is a big deal because it speaks to who the one is who's going to be humiliated or put in infirmity or bruised or humiliated or put to shame, right? The Lord is not taking pleasure in the fact that that's happening. He's taking pleasure in the one who that is happening to because, not just because there's this, sometimes I think as Christians we have this utilitarian view of the Trinity, right? Yeah. The Father loves the Son because the Son is going to do these things. Or, you know, Jesus is good because he does. It's not just the Father is excited because he knows what's going to happen. The Father is delighted because he delights in and of in and of Jesus, in and of his word, in and of the second person 
the son of the Trinity, right? So he is delighting in him, knowing full well what he's going to do. And, and you know, the Catholic, I, I didn't understand this in my kind of Protestant days. I sort of always thought that the theology was human beings sinned. There's injustice in the world. God needs to set things right. Um, the punishment for sin is death. That means if there's sin in the world, somebody's got to die. God looks around. He's like, I need somebody's blood. Somebody's got to be killed. Yeah. And he's like, fine, I'll take you. You go die. I'll, I'll have your blood because I need somebody's blood, which is such a strange way to think about an all-loving, all-powerful God. <laughs> Rather, the full Catholic understanding is not that God demands blood so somebody's got to pay. The understanding is that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, realizes, look, there is something not right in the universe that I have made that was tov, that was beautiful, delightful. There is something incongruent now because human beings have fallen. So I will step forward and offer myself freely to set things right. Yes. Not that God's demanding my blood, but that I'm saying I want these people to live so I will step forward in freedom to give them the life that they can never give themselves. That's the difference. That's what the Father is taking delight in. So he gives his life for, as an offering for sin. Now, that's the other thing. That literally, in, in the Greek, it talks about, um, well, in some translations, it talks about he gave his light as a guilt offering, right? And what it's referring to is specifically a, one of the offerings of the Old Testament. In Leviticus, it talked about different offerings. And the idea was, for every sin, there's got to be expiation. And, and it's sort of where we get this whole bloodthirsty idea because the old, a lot of the people in the Old Testament were sort of under the impression that, well, okay, if we sin, we have to offer these animals and we have to shed their blood because God needs blood. And if we do that, then everything's going to be okay. It's, Something's got to pay. It's like the, con the concept of a scapegoat. It's like you tie all your sins yes. to a goat and send it out into the desert to die. And there is a piece of that that, that's true. Things what? need to be set right. Well, with this the thing though is that it uh, it comes out of a spirit of actually of sacrifice of saying like I'm going to offer you first fruits, but then because it's right and it's good, it's a part of me. It's like the valuable part. Yeah. And you're saying like I like I, I've done bad things, but I want to offer something valuable of myself. Well, or the opposite could also be true. That the you know the original reason that they started offering rams and cows and goats and things was because those were the things that they were worshiping. Yes. So it's not just God needs somebody's blood. Here's a cow. It's that you need to show me that these are not your gods. You need to show me that I have your heart. So it's you know it's like the it's like the wife who's like you need to go throw away your computer to show me you're not going to be hooked on porn anymore. Show me. Yeah. Prove it to me. That's what God is saying. Right. Sacrifice that goat that you thought was a god. Because I need you to show me that I am the one you love. You love me above these false idols. So that's where that all comes from. And the guilt offering of the Old Testament, Leviticus 5 and 6, the, the prescribed guilt offering was always a ram or a lamb. Yeah. Sometimes it can be rendered. So it's ironic that, not it's not ironic, but it's beautiful that Isaiah is talking about this one who is going to be crushed to give his life as a guilt offering for sins. What's the guilt offering? Well, a lamb is always the guilt offering. So what Isaiah is saying in between the lines is this suffering servant is going to be a lamb for his people. Mm. And the father is takes delight in him. Mm. So what you actually see happening, I think this ties into everything that's going to come, what you see the father doing is acting sort of as priest. Because what does a priest do? A priest offers sacrifice. What's God the Father doing? He's offering his son. The son is actually offering himself. There's a, a blurry line between, you know, the persons of the Trinity. Who's doing what? I don't know. But the Father and the Son, in a certain sense, are offering himself as expiation for sin, as the guilt offering. This is, again, where 
Hebrews is really going to come in about Jesus being high priest. Isaiah is beginning to unpack what Hebrews is going to say. Does that make sense? Is Absolutely. that convoluted? No, no. It's, 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 and because of his affliction, he shall, you know, what's the, what's the, Tim Gray, both of our, our old teacher and mentor, had this great word, you know, it's, My it's, thesis director, yeah. Yeah. It's, I um, just wanted to be cool right there, actually. That was awesome. Thanks. He was my mentor. Father hey, Peter. Take he, that. he was Matt Bacher's mentor, too. Yeah, Matt Bacher lived in his house. I never lived in his house. <laughs> um, what was I going to say, though? Yeah, it's, it's, it's harder. My father's, my father's house has many rooms. For Pete's sake. <laughs> <laughs> it's harder to offer sacrifice. It, it, I forget what he said. He, he had a witty, concise way of saying this. But it's one thing to offer a dead animal on the altar. It's another thing to offer yourself when you just want to keep climbing off the altar. It's hard to put something on the altar that just is going to want to take off. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's one thing to kill. So Jesus puts himself on the altar, and what we're actually all called to do as Christians is put ourselves on the altar, to give ourselves freely to God. But we're not dead. We're not slain first. We're asked to freely offer ourselves in all of our lives to die to ourselves in that real way. Mm. but then to be brought into that newness of life. This is what Isaiah is pointing ahead toward. There's priestly language. There's liturgical language. There's sacrificial language all over this prophecy. This isn't just this suffering servant that everyone's going to spit on and whip and beat up and throw harsh words at. This is a suffering servant who's going to put himself on the altar like the lamb to take on the expiation for sin. But in this case, it's not just the priest slaying some poor lamb, putting him up there. It's the priest himself saying, I will offer myself as a sacrifice for the people I represent. That's all embedded in Isaiah, I think, which is cool. Okay, so I just got a totally cool concept. So I've been really thinking about the three stages of the spiritual life, the traditional ones, uh, purification, illumination, and unity. So if we look at this um, at this first reading as purification, so it's like, you know, here we go. This is expiation. We're going to get in, and the bridge between purification and illumination is always uh, praise. That's why at Sunday Mass, we go from the penitential rite directly into the Gloria. Ooh. And the Gloria is then the bridge between um, illumination, which we get in the readings in the homily. So what happens is that we get into the psalm today, and and this song is, is all about singing glory to the Lord, just like giving glory to God, and and just talking about the glory glorious wonders of what God is doing in the midst of life. And so, so the psalm actually becomes this really cool bridge to be able to get us into like a. Uh, uh, an understanding, because um, if you're if you're not glorifying God, then you're not actually saying I'm willing to tune into the fact that God is present in the purification of life. Yeah, and that's actually like sometimes like as Catholics, I, I'm always wondering like, do we have a vision past merely the crucifixion and the passion? Because some because say that one more time a, a vision past now okay. like because because sometimes it's it is it's like the summit of all creation it is the glorification of the Lord like the glory the glory seat of God is uh, is the 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 inauguration is the cross itself but yeah. th- that is the purification of humanity and that's where we we can offer so much thanksgiving and we can sing glory to God yeah but then like. And which which gets us back actually into to Hebrews. So like yeah. you, you had some ideas about Hebrews. Well, let's get the Psalm first. I I already spoke about the Psalm. Well, yeah, you, did. <laughs> <laughs> you did, but but I want to add a piece if I may. Mm-mm. Come on, just one t- a tiny. Okay. 
So the other piece that's not, it's not present in what we are given this week, but the first line of the psalm I actually think is significant because what the first line of the psalm of Psalm 33 says is, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous. Okay. The reason I think that's significant is because, and, and again, then the response, let your mercy be on us. We place our trust in you. What are we actually placing? We're placing ourselves on the altar. Christ is the righteous one, the perfectly righteous one, which the psalmist is speaking about in the first verse, right? Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous. Who is the righteous? The one who's about to be afflicted and bruised and humiliated with whom the father delights, oh, who's man. going to place himself in his mercy in trust before God. Yes. Which I just thought was cool. So that first line, I think, is that, is makes a big difference. It makes a big difference. But uh, I, as you were saying it, I was like, man, how the Father speaks to us as he speaks to his son. Yeah, absolutely. Well... And, and, and read the read the read the first what stanza? Read the read the read the read the <laughs> read first the, read, read the, the first stanza. Upright is the word of the Lord. We talked about this last week. What's the word of the Lord? The, Jesus. Jesus. So I mean, you want to read this at first glance and be like, upright are the scriptures. Yes, that's true. But read in between the lines. Read in in the light of the Christian faith. Upright is the word of the Lord. Oh, that's the righteous one who the first verse referred to. Oh, the suffering servant who's going to place himself in trust before him. That's what's upright. That's who's, and, and then the next line, and all of his works are trustworthy. When it says um, upright is the word of the Lord, it's actually imagine it referring to a person. And all of his works are trustworthy. He loves justice and right. Of the kindness of the Lord, the earth is full. It's not just the scriptures are all of these things or the person who engages in them is all these things. But the word of the Lord is actually flesh and blood. What? Why are you giving me that look? I'm just loving it, man. You're, all right, all right. You're, you're Christo- all right, all right, all right. Your Christological understanding is totally illuminating my heart. Oh, I like illuminating your heart. Illuminating. Illuminating. <laughs> I like aluminum in my heart, too. And that does bring us to Hebrews, I think, in a really cool way. My goodness, what was that? That was a text message in your computer. That was me? Yeah. Oh, when do you know? Yeah. Um, Brothers and sisters, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Um, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has similarly been tested in every way, yet without sin. Uh, here's That's one of my favorite moments in Mass whenever anybody tries to pronounce similarly. <laughs> similarly. <laughs> similarly. That's your favorite moment in Mass. I mean, okay, no I'm it just isn't. kidding. I'm just trying to pick on you. Thanks, Picker. My goodness. Um, okay, you we can talked pick about... your friends. Yes. You right. can pick your nose. Okay. But you can't pick your friend's nose. Good. We're really trying to get through this fast. I'm trying to. You can't tell. <laughs> um, oh, okay. We talked about the context a little bit of Hebrews last week. This is probably written to a community of Jewish Christians. So right. Jews who have now become Christians who are facing probably a ton of persecution and pressure to throw in the towel because this is too hard. Right. The whole nation's going to war. They're not allowed to because Jesus had turned the other cheek and all this stuff. You know, Jesus is ascending to heaven. He's supposedly high priest, but I don't see him. I see Caiaphas, the high priest, but maybe they don't get it. So the author of Hebrews is laying out this grand vision of how what we have now is far so far superior to what we had in the Old Testament, you can never think of going back, right? So the high priest that we have is so far superior to Caiaphas or the other priests of the Levitical tradition. The temple is so far superior to the brick and mortar temple in Jerusalem. You know, all of this is, is far superior. So think about it for a second. If you were going to design the perfect priest, mm-hmm. so what, what fundamentally, what is a priest? One who offers sacrifice. That's what you do. What are you? 
you and and don't just think about a Catholic priest, just representative priest. of of a representative. You are a you are a, a behalf. You are a mediator between yes. uh, the divine and the human. That's exactly right. And and any call, you know, other cultures have had priests and priestesses, all of this sort of things. Right. It's not just about what you care for the sick and you. Uh, counsel people and you offer sacrifice. You do all those things, but what you are, what the priesthood is, is like you said, the mediation between God and man. Right. So what's the perfect person to mediate between God and man? God and man. The God man, right? <laughs> yeah. Because all other priests, and this is the the author of the Hebrews point, all other priests ultimately fail. They may understand, you know, what it is to be a human being and to bring that before God. Yep. Jesus, you know, as a lot of the heresies said, understands what God is and who he is and what it means to relate to human beings. But what is it, you know, but it, it'd be so tempting to, you know, and we, we get into these platitudes as Christians sometimes like, well, Jesus is our high priest. And it's easy to think, well, well, you know, does God, he's so far off. He's in heaven. Jesus isn't even, you know, here anymore except in the Eucharist. And that's, it looks like bread to me. This is hard. Right. Does he really understand me? Right. Like, you understand me because you're my friend, and I can look at you and I can talk to you. But God, I don't see him. He's he's off. He's distant. You know, I, I don't I don't know. And so what the author of the Hebrews is trying to say, no, he is human in everything, every suffering, everything you felt. When he, when he was tired, he had to yeah. sleep. When he was hungry, God had to eat. When he was a baby, God's parents could have dropped him and killed him. I mean, you know what? That That's a possibility. Yeah. God had to have his diaper changed. He's like us in all of those things. Yep. So he understands what it means to be us, but he's also God. So he understands what God needs from us. He had smelly feet and they needed to be washed. He probably had smelly feet. Well, I don't know if smelly feet are a result of original sin or not. That's debatable. But regardless, regardless they need to be washed. They need to be washed. So in the sort of foreshadowing of the idea of the priesthood in the first reading, now it's being for lack of a better way to put it, fleshed out in Hebrews and shown, okay, oh, the priesthood that was alluded to subtly back in the first reading, this is Jesus. In case you missed it, to put it, ex- my, my advisor, I'm finishing my dissertation, she keeps sending me back these edits. She's like, be explicit. Say what you mean. Like, just art, say it. Don't dance around it. Yeah. Hebrews is saying it. He's like, it's him. That's the one. Everything this is talking about, Jesus. He's the priest. He's the offerer of the sacrifice. He is the priest. He's the offering. He is the sacrifice. He is all of it. Yes. Which is cool. So Which, how do we get there? Well, this is the thing. Oh, is, oh and by the way, so, th- so then it ends by saying, so if that's all true. Then let us approach the throne of grace. Confidently. confidently confidently. And which leads us into Mark. Yes, because sometimes you can be overconfident. <laughs> I can be overconfident? No, the apostles can. Oh. Sometimes one can. One can. Well, let, let's finish that I verse, can... though. So let us confidently ap- approach the throne of grace. Why? To receive mercy and to find grace for timely help. There's a reason for a confident approach. The disciples aren't going to get it until right. later. Right. So that brings us to the gospel. Which James and John are just so absurd, and and I like how it's pointed out that specifically who the Jamokes were, who are like, hey, Jesus, uh, we want us to do whatever we ask you. Yeah. Yeah, which is, this is where I don't want to get ahead of myself and go to next week, but this ties into next week. There's a climax to the story. What has just happened at this point? Do you remember? As they're, literally, as they're asking the question. No. 
I mean, um, Jesus is just, I mean, well, this is, we're just picking up from last week. I mean, Jesus foretells his death and he's, and they're walking along and, and, and we're having all these concrete expressions of if you leave everything, then you get a thousand fold more and then life and the next. Well, yeah, literally at this point though, he is just given one of the most intense foreshadow, uh, one of the most intense descriptions of his death yet. He is going to be spat upon and be beat up and be, you know, Isaiah whipped. Isaiah, basically, and he's like, guys, this is going to happen. This is coming. I'm going to die. You know, I mean, imagine going to your best friend in the world. And are you, you know, yeah, I going to Father Brady. I'm your best. We all know I'm your best friend in the world. Yes. You go to Father Brady, who you live <laughs> with, and you're like, Father Brady, I just went to the doctor and they diagnosed me with, you know, the stage four cancer. I, I've got a couple of weeks to live. This is like, what's going to happen. He's like, what are you doing with your Jeep? You find anybody to take it yet? <laughs> Like, what can I get out of you? That's what they're doing. Yeah, like, well, are or you, they've just totally. Well, no, no, he'd be, he'd be like, "Are you willing to give me anything? Uh, yeah. Like, can you? Would you like if I ask of you like some of your stuff? Will you give it to me? Yeah. And it's like, what do you want? And well, that's the even more profound part is Jesus' response, which is not, "What's wrong with you?" Or did you not hear what I just said? He's like, "Okay, what do you want me to do for you?" Yeah. He open. He doesn't guarantee I'm going to do it, but he's like, "All right, let's hear it." Let's yep. see what let's see what you want. And remember the Hebrew the letter of the Hebrews said let's confidently approach him. That's in a certain sense what the sons of thunder are doing. They're like, "All right, we're going to confidently approach you." Zebedee. But not to receive mercy and to find grace for timely help. Right. But to get the thrones. And so they're like, "We want thrones at your right and your left hand. We want the glory, we want the gold, you know, we want all the stuff." What's even more fascinating is Jesus doesn't say no. You ever notice that? Yeah. You expect him. We all kind of know the story in our minds of being shot down. He doesn't shoot him down. He says, "He says, okay, well, can you drink the cup? Can you be baptized?" And and then they're like, "Yeah, we we can actually." And he says, "You," he says, "You don't know what you're asking for this throne of of for, to, to sit at my left and my right at my throne of glory." Yes. Because my throne of glory, uh, we know, is revealed, especially particularly in the Gospel of John. Well, I think it's funny because, first of all, he's like, well, are you able to drink the well, well, the cup, of course? He's already referred to the, the baptism with which he's going to be baptized was actually an allusion back to the baptism in the Jordan at the beginning of Mark, where he pointed toward the crucifixion, where he said he's going to where he's going. So he's saying, are you prepared to be crucified? Are you prepared to suffer and die? And, but they don't seem to realize that. But they're like, are you going to are you ready to drink? the cup? Are you willing to take on what this means? And they're like, yes. He's like, well, I can't give you the throne. <laughs> like, they're not mine. He's, he's like, they're, they're not mine. It's the like, father in heaven. It's like if you went to a car dealership uh-huh. and you had somebody showing you around this car, you know? Yep. And they're like, all right, these are all the features. This is what it's like. This is the payments. This is how much it's going to cost. It's a ton of money. Are you willing, you know, to pay that much? And you're like, yes, I can do it. He's like, great. I don't own the car dealership. It's not my place. I'm just hanging out. <laughs> you're like, oh, what do you mean? You're like, that's what I'm reminded of. Yeah. That's a silly analogy. But he's like, that well, that is a silly analogy. It, but it, I mean, we're trying to get there. But what he's saying, and this is why this is so significant. And this is how I think we tie these together. Not just because Jesus is telling these guys, you know, what it means to be a follower, what it means to be a Christian. That's all there. Right. But why in the church in her does the church in her wisdom tie these readings together? She ties these readings together because these guys aren't just being called to be followers of Christ. Right. They're called to be priests specifically. So why do we have all of our readings about priests, Jesus, the high priest, perfectly offering himself as perfect high priest to the Father, and then this 
gospel passage that kind of relates and kind of doesn't. Unless what he's actually challenging the apostles to is not just be a follower, you are going to be priests in a way that the Levitical priests could have never dreamt of, in the way the high priest could have never dreamt of, because these guys actually will give their lives. They will be bruised. They will be humiliated. They will be put to death. And I firmly believe that Jesus and his father side by side will take delight in them. He will delight in them as they, not because they're being crushed, right? but because of who they are and who they are in him and their confidence. Because they do receive that confidence in the end to they go really before do. him for his mercy. And then the father in the first reading delights upon them, even though they're being crushed and bruised because their identity is far more than that. Wow. Dude, you just, cr- you just cracked those like wide open for me, man. Well... I, uh, there you go. I feel really cool to be a priest right now. You're it's it's a big responsibility, Father Peter. Don't take it lightly. Well, with comes with great power comes great responsibilities. <laughs> well done, Grandpa Ben, Uncle Ben. <laughs> well, guys, we got to call it a day. We will be back next week, I think. Yep, and uh, we think <laughs> unless the end it's of the world safe. comes. Yeah, you never know. Dude, today at my homily, I said, I said, you know, today, today could be the end of the world. I mean, uh, I mean, or but we have to plan for another ten thousand years. Yeah, that's the tricky part. So, God bless you. you. See you for the next ten thousand years. You're stuck. Yeah, with us. you're stuck with us for the rest of time. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs>